1: that song because i thought you'd really like it it's called sinbad the sailor it's by woody herman and tito puente from the 1958 album herman's heat and puento's beat available on apple music i know you're a big jazz fan this is more big band or swing but i am uneducated i just group them all together and i really thought you'd like it
2: you know i group them together as well they really kind of go hand in hand and what a fantastic song To kick off what I think is going to be a fantastic episode, because we are talking about Sinbad, and not just Sinbad movies. We're talking about Ray Harryhausen Sinbad movies, and uh, I think we're going to have a really fun time. We've talked Harryhausen in the past, but we haven't really specifically talked about these three movies, and uh, we're going to be talking a lot about Harryhausen goodness and the history of Sinbad. A lot of fun stuff coming up in this episode.
1: That's right. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from com and MonsterMovieKid.WordPress.com. I am going to call this meeting to order by banging the gavel. <laughs> For old business, Richard, we've got quite a few to mention in our roll call of new members. We would like to welcome verbally, we've done it, you mostly have done it, on our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. But we'll do it here verbally, with a little finesse or flair maybe that we can't just do writing on Facebook. So welcome to Matt Gemmel, Eric Fink, The Midnight Movie Podcast, and Ricardo Delgado. One might say that our roll call was in
2: Dinarama.
1: <laughs> we have for feedback this month something very, very special. Our good friend Steve Turek is um, sort of a roving reporter or contributor, unsolicited. So it's very much appreciated that he would do this. He has reached out to, I think we can call him a friend of ours as well. We have spoken to him in a personal conversation. So he's a friend. Kurt Christian, who is actually uh, pretty heavily featured in two of the three Sinbad movies. And they had a nice conversation about uh, the movies and... Kurt tells wonderful Hollywood stories and movie-making stories. That's our feedback. That's our contribution for this episode. And we thank them very, very much. It's going to make this a very special episode.
2: It's kind of cool to say we know somebody that knew Ray Harryhausen or somebody that knew Yul Brenner. Steve, of course, interviewed him for his podcast and talked, obviously, Harryhausen and Sinbad, but also really covered... Uh, a lot of other films that Kirk Christian did. I don't know the episode number right off the top of my head. We will throw it in the notes for the episode. Kirk Christian is really a great guy, very personable. You're going to pick up on that right away when you listen to uh, his audio clips. Thank you very much to uh, Steve Turek, our dear friend, and to our friend Kirk Christian for providing what is, uh, I think, going to be just the icing on the cake
1: for this, uh, this month's episode. And let's get right to it, because this episode, Rich, is as big as a giant walrus. <laughs> we need to uh, get that, this thing under control and, uh, and roll on with it. I do want to mention real quick that Steve and Kurt submitted their <laughs> contribution through our email address, which if there's been discrepancies in the past, it is classichorrors.club at gmail.com. They just recorded an MP3 or four or whatever it is, sent it to us. We were able to download and use it. They could also have called, although there's probably a three-minute limit, so they would have had to do it like 10 times. Our hotline, our number where you can leave short feedback, and that number is 616-649-2582 or 616-649-2582
2: as I'm doing the dance of Kali.
1: (laughs) Yes. Rich, before we start, I am counting on you to provide some background information. Who the heck is Sinbad anyway? The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, our first movie, was by far not the first appearance of the character. What can you tell us about his origin or his previous film appearances?
2: So I was not able to find out like one specific person who is credited with the creation of the character of Sinbad. Uh, if it's out there it, I totally missed it. So if someone's listening and knows, please let me know, let us know. But Sinbad, he's an adventurer. He's a sailor coming from middle Eastern tales. Uh, he originates from Baghdad and he had seven voyages through Africa and South of Asia. His stories are adventures with supernatural and fantasy elements. He battles monsters and magic sometimes. Other times, he's just in search of treasure and adventure. The character was in the One Thousand and One Nights saga, not the original version. He was added later in seventeenth and eighteenth century adaptations. The stories were set in the seven and eight hundreds, seven hundreds and eight hundreds. The earliest in print version of Sinbad appears around um, 1770, but the best known adaptation was in volume six of Sir Richard Burton's 1885 translation. And I should say not the Richard Burton (laughs) as in Elizabeth Taylor, uh, but Sir Richard Burton's 1885 translation of The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night. He doesn't make his screen adaptation appearance, first appearance until 1935, interestingly enough, in a animated short called Sinbad the Sailor. In 1936, and this is where I have seen him for the first time, uh, was in Popeye the Sailor. There was Popeye the Sailor meets Sinbad the Sailor. It was a 1936 two-reel color animated short. Popeye had been... One real black and white cartoons, and all of a sudden they came out with three color, two real shorts that played off much more cinematically. They, it just wasn't Popeye in normal settings. He was kind of placed now in a grand setting and with a bigger cast, although it's an animated short, so it's not really a cast, but more characters. Um, in this particular short, there's this funny little song that keeps going through it, and Doe, and or a version of Doe, Plays Sinbad the sailor. He's not called Bluto, but he looks exactly like Bluto. And he's actually playing a more kind of nefarious version of Sinbad, kind of a bad guy, because obviously Popeye is the good guy and he's either proving who's the biggest, baddest sailor of them all. And of course, the usual stuff happens. Sinbad meets Olive Oil and wants Olive Oil for himself, and Popeye has to do his battle. So it's obviously not. A straightforward adaptation of Sinbad, but a fun one. And that was probably, I guess I'm thinking now, probably my second appearance, or I guess uh, my second uh, exposure to to Sinbad. My first being Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which we will talk uh, later on. But I've seen the cartoon a gazillion times. It's been a few years, but it's fun. So seek it out. It's public domain, so easy to find. In 1942 we have Arabian Nights. Now this I don't know anything really much about this film but I'm intrigued. It stars Sabu as Ali Ben Ali and it features Shemp Howard as Sinbad. In a supporting role he plays just kind of one of the one of the thieves. Yes, Shemp Howard, brother of Mo Howard, brother of Curly Howard, member of the Three Stooges. Sinbad the Sailor 1947 features Douglas Fairbanks Jr as Sinbad and this of course it's it's a pure adventure you're not going to get any monsters no no minotaurs in this version of Sinbad and it's a very 1940s hollywood version of Sinbad but one that I'm interested in I haven't seen it but I definitely want to check it out then in 1955 we get Son of Sinbad this features Dale Robertson as Sinbad and Vincent Price as Omar Khayyam, kind of his sidekick. There's a little bit of magic. We get kind of the open sesame kind of thing where the door opens. It's mostly adventure, um, and it's not a bad film. I actually really enjoyed it. I saw it earlier this year, and I will be covering it um, on as a kind of an extra on the, the blog uh, at some point in the next several weeks. Then we have Captain Sinbad, 1963, starring Guy Williams. I love Guy Williams, Zorro, Professor John Robinson from Lost in Space. He actually played a really good Sinbad. And uh, this one clearly inspired by Harryhausen's Sinbad, uh, but it's not on par. The, The special effects are not Harryhausen. So you do get some monsters and some special effects and stuff. But they're definitely uh, you're definitely in the B movie character uh, area here. But still a fun film. And Sinbad gets the girl at the end, and he's always in the seek of he's always in search of a bride. But then by the next movie, the bride is gone. You always kind of wonder. Uh, now there is a couple of more recent films. There's been a lot of foreign versions and cartoon versions and TV versions. A couple of film versions. That have piqued my interest for different reasons. One is Sinbad of the Seven Seas, 1989, starring Lou Ferrigno, AKA The Incredible Hulk, playing the lead role. This movie is notorious for bad acting, a low budget, a bad plot, but apparently it's become a bit of a cult favorite because it's so bad. There was another film a little more recently in 2011 called Sinbad and the Minotaur. Now, this is a lesser effort but it stars manu bennett as sinbad and manu is an actor he deathstroke from the arrow television series i actually really liked him supposedly it's considered a sequel of sorts to the 47 film and the harry housen trilogy it was not well received at the time so i'm sure the special effects are probably less than spectacular but curiosity has got me, and I definitely want to see this one. So there's a lot of other Sinbad films out there. Those are just some highlights. Sinbad has been a character in film for a long time, as well as, you know, obviously in literature. I, I think it's safe to say, though, that the three Harryhausen films are probably the cream of the crop for Sinbad. They're the, they're, they're Hollywood. They're the, the most well-known I would say they they surpass films like Sinbad and, and, and Son of Sinbad and Captain Sinbad because of Harry you know special effects work elevate the movies to one degree or another above some of the others. Definitely the first two films, maybe not so much the third film, which we'll talk about. But uh, I think it's interesting that, you know, we haven't really heard from Sinbad too much lately, I guess. I think Sinbad and the Minotaur in 2011 has been the last big Mm. Sinbad film, at least that I've been aware of. So we're, you know, probably due for another Sinbad film uh, of some sort, but it's really hard to match the special effects work of of Harryhausen. So you can do CGI. It'll probably look more realistic, but you're losing the magic of the Harryhausen uh, film. So that is the, the brief history I have of Sinbad. Now, Obviously, we're going to be talking about Ray Harryhausen, but we've talked about Harryhausen in the past. Um, Do you want to kind of talk
1: on that a little bit? Yeah, so we had gone to Oklahoma City, of all places, for an exhibit of uh, Ray Harryhausen. I don't even remember what it was called, but it had all kinds of, of props and actual models and things from not just the Sinbad movies, but all of his movies. Took a lot of pictures, I think, We both wrote it about on our blogs and we did a whole episode uh, like Richard mentioned earlier. This was pre SoundCloud days. So you had to have been with us pretty much from the start. That was episode 13. And uh, we are going to try to find that and quote, remaster it, clean it up a little bit and put it back out on this feed so that if you didn't have the opportunity to hear that, you can listen to it. It's been a hot minute since we've done that episode. It seems like a lifetime ago. Richard, you sound so young. You said hot minute. I did. Well, I, you I, know, that was way back in
2: <laughs> in the before time, 2017. We were all younger back then. And yeah.
1: So all of that is to say we're not going to talk much about Harryhausen during this. We're going to talk about Sinbad in the movies and don't think that we are neglecting anything because it's like the elephant in gonna... the room or the giant walrus in the room is is Harryhausen. We, but we are, we are going to talk know. about
2: the monsters though. So yes. the rest assured we will be covering that. We
1: just yeah. won't be talking about and Harry maybe House. playing a little game with the monsters. We'll see. Yes. Later. Yes. <laughs>
3: journey to a magical time when demons and heroes battled for the golden treasures and human spoils of forgotten kingdoms. Kill. Kill him. Thrilled with the story of a legendary superhero who fights through all the torments of hell to save the woman he loves from the world's most powerful sorcerer. This is Sinbad's greatest adventure. The seventh voyage of Sinbad. She was once a beautiful princess. The sadistic magician shrinks her to the size of a tiny doll. And now, Sinbad must do the impossible to save her. He must destroy a legion of hell-spawned monsters on the death-shrouded island of Colossa. See the flashing death of the living skeleton. See the attack of the giant two-headed bird. See the dance of the cobra woman and feel her deadly slithering embrace. See the spectacular battle between the one-eyed cyclops and the fire-breathing dragon. The incredible magic of Dynorama recreates the enchanted, breathtaking adventure that could never be told before. The Seventh Voyage
2: of Sinbad. When his betrothed Princess Parisa is shrunk by an obsessed magician, Sakura, Sinbad must return to the island of Colossa to retrieve a piece of eggshell from a giant two-headed bird. There, he and his crew face a cyclops, a dragon, a skeletal warrior, and other thrilling dangers, none of which are as deadly as the backstabbing magician himself.
1: Seventh Voyage of Sinbad was written by Ken Kolb, directed by our old friend Nathan Duran. I'm sure we'll explain why he's our old friend. He's directed other movies we've talked about. Runs 88 minutes. It was released in the UK on December 5th, 1958. And then a couple weeks later in the US on December 23rd, 1958. Richard, I have to tell you the first thing, the very first thing that I noted about this movie was the music. Just starts out with an incredible score by Mr. Bernard Herman.
2: Oh, the the score for this is amazing. It gets... It's like that little, you know, earworm or earwig that gets in, it it wits with you. Once you hear it, you can't get it out. And it, you know, I think it's interesting though of how this movie could have been vastly different because Bernard Herrmann was not Harryhausen's first choice. Mm. He wanted Miklos Rosa, which he eventually gets in the next film. Actually, Miklos Rosa did do some other work, but Bernard Herrmann though, ended up doing other Harryhausen films. I mean, he used them again in the three worlds of Gulliver, Mysterious Island, Jason and the Argonauts. I just feel when I listen to that music, I, I need to get on a ship somewhere and I need to put a <laughs> turban on and I need to conquer some, you know, creature on some island. Right out of the gate. Yeah, you get the feel this is going to be a fun film. You got lively music. It's it's just pure adventure and fantasy is coming your way. And, and it yeah, you get that exactly.
1: And I was afraid that I mean it's such an earworm. And then after the credits, sort of they use it in the first scene. And I thought, oh, I love it. But if they if that's all they do, it could get a little old. But it's not. It okay. in fact they rarely use it after those first couple of scenes. And there's some music later, actually, when the skeleton is fight uh, is fighting. That's very unique for that scene. I think he's using xylophone or something. But it just it evokes the sound of like bones rattling. And uh, it's just a terrific score in all areas of the movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think the reason I wanted to ask you about Sinbad's uh, sort of heritage or origin or whatever is that in none of these movies, does it really explain? I mean, we are sort of expected to know the character in a way, but yet it's interesting the way we learn about him is from what the other characters say. So specifically in Seventh Voyage, you know, we hear things like, well, no one would step foot on that island, but Sinbad would. And uh, he has the eyes of an owl. And then the genie that we meet later when he comes out, you know, he longs to be human so that he can sail with Sinbad. So obviously he's a character of myth, of legend. Everyone knows him. And we're just kind of expected to know him, too, and know what adventure he's seeking and what he'll be up to.
2: You're not seeing the first episode. It's almost like. This is episode three of an an adventure series. So Sinbad's had adventures, uh, maybe like, I don't know, second season almost. You know, he's had adventures. He's everybody knows him. uh, They talk about him. He's got all this well-known history. But, you know, now we're seeing our first take on Sinbad. And Kerwin Matthews, I think, does an amazing job as Sinbad for this time period, late 1950s. The film has a a certain look, a certain quality that I feel definitely sets it in the late 50s, early 60s time period. I was trying to think if I've seen any other Kerman Matthews movies, and I have. Now, I have wanted to see Jack the Giant Killer for a while, but I've never seen that film. But actually, several people or that name popped up several times as I was doing my research. I have seen him in Octoman of all the films. And I honestly can't place him in that movie, which sadly enough means I might have to go back and revisit Octoman. That's a movie I've joked about so many times over the years, a so bad, it's good film. And then of course he was also in like the boy who cried werewolf and a movie called nightmare and blood that I'm not familiar with, but We've lost him uh, quite a few years ago now. He died in 2007, but at the age of 81. Uh, I definitely want to definitely want to see Jack the Giant Killer. Uh, Octoman, I've seen it a few times on, on <laughs> Blu-ray. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready to see Octoman again.
1: Maybe someday. With Harryhausen and with these movies, this is going to sound strange, but I almost think the older movies are better and that with each one, They decrease maybe just a little bit, at least in the way that I like it. And I just think it's because of the technology is, you know, was the top at that time. And as we go on in time and technology gets better, it looks a little more quaint, a little more dated. But this to me, this is like peak. I mean, it's amazing. And you really wonder even today, well, how did they do that? And when you stop and think how they did it, it it boggles my mind.
2: I would agree. I mean, this is the favorite. Of the three films for me. Now, I do really like the second film. This in many ways is, in, is the it was almost like a golden era for Harryhausen, the 50s and 60s in particular. I think when you get to the 70s, he was still doing, I think, great work. I mean, I think what we see in, in the the two 70s movies, just as good, I think, as he did in previous films, but I think. The world was changing, and and the technology, while it's still amazing, and I still love it today, it was looking a little more quaint as the as the type of films were changing, and the audiences were beginning to change a little bit, and unfortunately, fantasy films, which we had a lot of in the '80s, there was a lot of sword and sorcery films. There And, of course, we had Clash of the Titans in 81, which I think, you know, he went out on a, on a high note. That film is a lot of fun. But Hollywood was changing. And there's a reason, you know, why Harryhausen was taking a longer gap between films. And then, of course, eventually
4: mm-hmm.
2: quit making films. There was a lot of opportunity in some of those great sword and sorcery films from the 80s, I think, where a little bit of Harryhausen magic would have elevated some of those B-pictures. You didn't necessarily have to have five or six different monsters, but it would have been fun to have maybe one monster. But Harryhausen was not going to guest star in somebody else's film. It was he was going to be the producer and, and you know oftentimes co-directing a film. And of course, he inspired you know countless special effects artists. And, and over the years, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, there's just some magical quality about it you had some great location shots. Harryhausen's thing is he always wanted to to create a fantasy land. And this movie knocks it out of the park. Yes. You might not believe that the monsters are real, but it it takes you to a fantasy land, which is exactly what Harryhausen wanted. There's no moments where you're struggling with any of the imagery on the screen. It's like you've, accepted that you've entered a fantasy world and this fantasy world has got cyclops and and you know cobra women and, and skeleton and I, I think he succeeds on, on so many levels uh and again you had so much going for it you had the cast music everything was kind of just a perfect combination
1: on this film i'm probably ignorant and I'm sure it's very difficult and there's a lot of artistry in it. But I think of someone sitting at a computer and creating special effects, I'm I'm more inclined to think, well, anyone can do that. And again, I apologize, I don't want to offend anyone. I know that's probably not true, but to think that somebody took, you know, sat there for hours and hours and moved a little piece just a little bit to make it look as good as it does in 1958. I mean, that's just amazing. You really can't duplicate that i don't think sitting at a computer i I
2: think cgi obviously yes it takes a tremendous amount of skill to to do a film with cgi a lot of hours and a lot of effort but as i've said there there is a certain amount of magic that is lost because there will never be a museum i mean what would you put in the museum Uh, a laptop a a computer (laughs) I mean, there's something magical about going to an exhibit full of artwork and full of armatures that, you know, Harryhausen, he had it in his hands, you know, and he was moving the pieces. And these are things that that were part of of his life. And we're getting a chance to see it behind the glass case. But still, you're, you're looking at real, tangible film history right there.
1: Here we are. We said we weren't going to talk much about Harryhausen. That's about all we've talked about. But let's get into the other aspects of the movie. Tell us about the cast.
2: Well, you know, talked about Kerwin Matthews playing Simbad. I think he does a really good job. Again, for this time period. Now, I was I did not know this little tidbit. The character of Princess Parisa, of course, is played by Catherine Grant. I did not recognize Catherine Grant. The name didn't stick with me, but she left film. Uh, in 19, uh, well, about the same time period, because she married Bing Crosby in 1957. Ah. I was worried, were we going to have a Star Trek connection? (laughs) And yes, yes, we do. Torrin Thatcher plays Sakura the Magician. Amazingly so. He, He does such a wonderful job. And yes, he played the character of Marplan in the first season classic Star Trek episode, The Return of the Archons, the Landrew episode, uh, where they all go festival, festival and have their fun. Uh, He was the third member of the triad who ends up saving Kirk and Spock and uh, from being taken over and becoming one of the body. He did a lot of other work. He was in Jack the Giant Killer um, episode of Thriller. He was in uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1968 He was in an episode of Night Gallery. So familiar character actor. Uh, I knew that I was placing him from something. And then once I saw the credits, I'm like, there's my Star Trek reference. It's a shame there won't be
1: any Doctor Who references in this episode.
2: I I know. (laughs) And then, of course, we have the genie played by Richard uh, Eyre. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it's pronounced. Richard Eyre. He was in lots of TV. He was in The Invisible Boy in 57. And uh, later became a school teacher. And you know, there, there's an opportunity at some point you're going to ask me to do something, and I'm going to respond, I shall try, Jeff. I, shall try. <laughs> I should have done that at the beginning when you asked me to talk about Simbad. If I'd have been thinking, I shall try, I shall try. Uh, anyway, I actually loved him as the genie. I thought, you know, obviously he's a younger little boy. So, we're not getting a Robin Williams, Aladdin version of the genie here, but he works. And I, I, you know, I think it's a lot of fun to, to see him. And unfortunately, I think I read that he did not do some of the location work and he regrets not being able to do that uh, because they ended up using like a, a stand in and taking him from like the backside. And this film, I mean, I think in most of the films, his his crew are certainly they're in it for the treasure they're in it for fame and fortune and certainly more so in this film you know they're they're not to be trusted necessarily or some of them aren't to be as trusted
1: i think the reason they're more out for fate or fortune or whatever is that he has to recruit them he has to get they are prisoners that are pardoned to go with him so you sort of expect that they'll well, I didn't expect that they would betray him, but when they did, it was really no surprise.
2: That is true. I forgot about that little part. So that that is true. Well, I had to
1: look. I couldn't remember which movie it was from. But interestingly, you made that comment because this is the one that it was in. I have to ask you, did Carla watch this? She watched all three. Yeah. Okay. What did she think when in one scene they are hatching a baby two headed bird? And in the next scene, there's a huge leg roasting over the fire.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, there, there was, you know, there was a, a few moments in some of these films where she's like, you know, not the bird, you know, and yeah, there was a few of that.
1: I did want to mention Nathan Duran, the director, and I might be cutting you off at the pass with this, but no. we've talked about him before. He directed The Deadly Man 20 Million Miles to Earth. Very interesting career, some real highs and some real lows, <laughs> Um, he also directed attack of the 50 foot woman i guess that's probably the lowest of the low i, I mean it's a fun movie but you know what i mean quality wise you go from hey ray harryhausen to transparent woman walking across
2: i yeah i mean i guess that's a notch above the boy who cried werewolf but not much of a notch above hey
1: now i love that
4: movie
1: <laughs> i mean he did jack the giant killer so
4: yeah
1: two so you know two other yeah. harryhausen or three first men in the moon yeah.
2: You know, this was filmed in Dynamation, which eventually became Super Dynamation and then became Dinarama. Basically, you know, arose by any other name. It was just the marketing for Harryhausen's work. It took him 110 months to do the special effects work. That's got to be wrong. I wrote that. Yeah, <laughs> <months. laughs> Whoa. Uh, probably 10 months. Now I'm question. Yeah, I don't know.
1: <laughs>
2: I, it took him a long time <laughs> to do the film. Um, not 110 months. Good Lord. that That's a long time. I think this is a really fun film. Easy to find. You can rent it on Amazon Prime for $3. Uh, you can find the DVD. There's also an all-region Blu-ray from Indicator, which has come out in the last several years. They're usually over in europe but they did all region blu-rays for all three of these films
4: Hmm.
2: i did not know that i now i've got the columbia pictures blu-ray which uh didn't have a lot of well it did have some extras on it i take that back it did have some but it's out of print and you're going to be paying top dollar if you get that version of it. So I would think you're better off getting the indicator version, which is more recent. The DVD, by the way, is about $10. So if you want to get the DVD, none of these films are impossible to find and all three are relatively cheap, depending on what you're looking for.
1: All right, that it then for Seventh Voyage. Oh, I did want to say, you said in previous uh, history, he went on seven voyages. So it's interesting that this is the seventh because would this be considered his last voyage if anyone in the know you know i mean it, it's not obviously but you know what i mean if at the time yeah. that came out with someone who's a sinbad aficionado say oh this is his last voyage and maybe maybe his last voyage was the most spectacular or, or something like that i don't know
2: well just, he gets the girl right at the end of the movie so i mean it's you could kind of say well sinbad's had his voyages he's had his adventures and now he's gonna go off into the sunset, at least until the next Sinbad movie when he doesn't have the girl. And I don't know. The girls don't fare too well in the Sinbad films. They don't make a comeback for the next one.
1: They're all pretty much self-contained. I mean, do not really yeah. any reference. I mean, you would think maybe in the second one, he would say, oh, well, this doesn't compare to when we went to Colossa. And, you know, it's they're pretty self-contained.
2: Oh, yeah, they really are. There's no connection really between between the movies but i i just always think that's kind of funny it's like yeah there's sinbad but you know where's his bride in the last film
1: and one last comment speaking of popular this was a huge hit in the year that it came out it was one of the top well it was the top grossing film of the summer and one of the top grossing films of the year that led me to ask and we talked about this earlier is well why did they wait 20 some odd years to make another one and well I'm not doing my math right but several years later to do another one Harryhausen was pumping one out every two or three years so it's not like he wasn't doing something similar it's just he wouldn't return to Sinbad until 1973 for the golden voyage of Sinbad and we will talk about that next.
5: Hey Rich, hey Jeff, I know you guys are doing an episode on all the Sinbad movies that Ray Harryhausen did. And I love Sinbad movies. I love Ray Harryhausen. I love the Seven Voyages Sinbad. It's one of my favorite movies. Not my favorite Sinbad movie, but one of my, you know, one of my favorite movies overall. And um I thought, you know, I know something about these movies, but sometimes it's good to bring in a subject matter expert about Harryhausen and Sinbad movies. And I was thinking, uh, who do I know that I could bring in? And I was like, oh, let me think, let me think. And then I remembered the line, you know, you know, I, I, I trust in Allah, but tie your camel, something like that. And epic. epic line. And I got Kirk Christian to come in and join me. Who's the one who says the line, Kurt, how are you doing today?
6: Terrific. Terrific. Thank you
5: very much. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing great. I mean, I, you know, getting to talk with you again is always wonderful and I know Rich and yeah. Jeff are mutual friends of both of ours.
6: Yeah, in our fellowship.
5: <laughs> yeah, we we have um some uh, irregular meetings where a group of us get together and we do a uh, FaceTime chats and um Rich and Jeff are part of that group and it's just it's just fun when you get the real every, fun. It is fun. I think it, I think people should do that, you know, have a chance to have that interaction. Even if you can't do it in person, yeah. you can still do it via Skype or zoom or whatever.
6: We have great discussions about movies. I mean, what's better than that?
5: <laughs> exactly. And, and, and also life, but I mean, and how it all ties yeah. together. So I think so, it's just fun.
6: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
5: Now, I've seen the seven Voyages of Sinbad many times. I believe you are telling me before we start recording, you saw it once when you were very young.
6: Yeah. teenager.
5: So you don't have a lot of clear memories of it. So we're not going to be able to talk. Well, Kurt will not be able to talk too much about the seven Voyages of Sinbad, but I'm just going to say the Harry housing effects as everybody knows that seen these movies. And I'm sure rich and Jeff have mentioned are wonderful. And Torrin Thatcher just eats the screen up as the villain I just love them, and and of course Catherine Crosby as the princess. I mean, she was just beautiful. I mean, you know, as I remember growing up and you just fall in love with her. And what can you say? It was just a, it's a fun movie. But you have a different Ray Harryhausen movie that you saw growing up that really yes. attached with you. And I know it's not a Sinbad movie, but I'll let you talk about this one.
6: Well, it was Jason and the Argonauts, and I love uh, Greek mythology, and they've grown up on it. And, uh, and he, he used to mix mythologies up in his movies. He'd take something from this, and something from Greek mythology, something from Arabic mythology. You know. It was fantastic. But he used to make a, amazing stories out of it you know, mix, by mixing them up. But um, Jason the Argonauts followed that story quite closely. And it was very, very well done, beautifully done. And the effects were great, and I just felt it. I think I saw it at least five times uh, before. So when I got the call for to to uh, for the casting of um, of Golden Voyage of Sinbad, I was uh, very excited because of that movie. That had such an impact on me. And,
5: and there, just before we hit the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, there is one thing we can tie in with the Seven Voyages Sinbad with Jason and the Argonauts, and that is the skeleton. In Seven Voyages Sinbad, yes. it's one skeleton, and in Jason and the Argonauts, it's why well, have one when you can have bunches?
6: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then um, in the next Sinbad movie, um, the skeletons at the beginning. You, you remember when, when I fight them? Yep. Oh, I bring them on I'm rather I don't fight them I, Patrick fights them Patrick Wayne fights them yeah, but, but they
5: yeah as I say you go from being the good guy to the bad guy
6: <laughs> yeah yeah so skeletons are in a lot of his movies they're referenced
5: a lot well I mean if you got something you know it, it works so well and you do it so well yeah. I, I can't blame him for going back to a bag of tricks when, he's, when he does some yeah. other things so wonderfully also
6: Absolutely.
3: The sorcerer of the black arts, the gold helmet faceless vizier, the death fight of the centaur on the griffin, the six-armed goddess of evil, the flying homunculus. siren on a rampage, Ah! Ah! the duel with the vanishing sorcerer, (laughs) the one-eyed centaur. The, the Fountain, fountain of, of Destiny. destiny.
2: When one-third of a gold tablet literally drops from the sky, Sinbad and the Grand Vizier of Moravia, who has the second piece, race against time to beat the evil Prince Kura in retrieving the third. On the island of Lemuria, he and his crew, including the lovely Margiana, face an oracle, a multi-armed goddess, a centaur, and other thrilling dangers, none of which are as deadly as the evil magician who's always one step ahead of them.
1: The Golden Voyage of Sinbad from 1973 was written by Brian Clemens, directed by Gordon Hessler, runs 105 minutes. It was released in the UK on January 25th, 1974, and several months later in the U S April 5th, 1974. What did you think of this? Richard, you want to start out talking about this one? Uh, It's, it's probably the one I've seen actually the least of the three
2: but it is my second favorite. You've got John Philip Law taking over the role of Sinbad, and I think he does a really good job. The times have changed, so we're not in the late 1950s anymore. And while I love Kerwin Matthews, I love John Philip Law's version of Sinbad from this time period, from the 1970s. He's by far my favorite from this particular era. There's just, uh, he's, he's, of course, from now we've got uh, Sinbad wears a, a turban, probably a bit more. I, I don't even know. I'm trying to think if he didn't wear a turban in this movie. He wears it almost throughout the whole film, if not the whole film. He's got a beard. There's a certain look about him. He looks a little more rugged. Probably, I would say, a little bit more like a sailor than Kerwin Matthews. You've just got some great location shots in this film. I enjoy it. I think the running time is a little longer than the previous film, but I think the running time on this movie is good. I don't think that there's ever a point, and I'm trying to think, but I don't think there's ever a point in this movie that I ever felt like it was dragging at at any point. It moves along at a fairly uh, nice pace. You've got a great cast of of characters. I think you've got a great villain in the character of Kura, uh, who played wonderfully by Tom Baker. Who, I'll just say it—the first Doctor Who reference of the day. He played the Fourth Doctor from uh, on Doctor Who from 1974 to 1981. That role he got because of this movie. This movie—he had been an actor for a while. He had done a few things. He had been in Frankenstein: The True Story, Vault of Horror, a movie called The Freak Maker. He also played Sherlock Holmes in Hound of the Baskervilles in 1981. And I did not know this until I was looking at the IMDb. He actually was the uncredited narrator in Enemy Mine from 1985, the Hmm. Lewis Dawson, Jr., Dennis Quaid film, which is a personal favorite of mine. I feel like you've got an amazing soundtrack with this movie. We talked about Miklos Rosa. Well, he finally gets to do a Harryhausen film. He's best known for doing Ben-Hur and King of Kings. And right out of the gate, if you're hearing his music and you've seen those movies, I'm immediately taken to Ben-Hur and King of Kings. There's a particular sound that uh, Miklos Rosa has, and and he brings it forth in this film. And I think the music elevates this movie. It it adds something to it. It's very different than what Bernard Herrmann did, but... Just as magical, I think, in a different way. It's it's a great um, addition to the film.
1: It's a little bit slower, less bombastic, but beautiful, beautiful music. And I like, of course, his score from Time After Time in 1979. I put this equal to Seventh Voyage of Sinbad as far as which one is my favorite. But then John Philip Law pushes it over, and this actually is my favorite. I think by far he's the best Sinbad. Love Carolyn Monroe. Yes, she was pretty much hired for her G-rated sex appeal. Yeah, she doesn't have the biggest role. She doesn't do that much, but she's there. (laughs) And what she does, she does well. (laughs) I will say John Philip Law, to me, looks like the love child of Terrence Stamp and Tom Skerritt. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm on this love child kick lately. I watched the original Firestarter last night and David Keith who is yep. in that, looks like the love child of uh, Kurt Russell and Dylan Walsh. So, <laughs> anyway. yes, I would
2: agree with that. I'm looking at the picture of John Philip Liar from the DVD. And yes, wholeheartedly, I'm seeing Terrence Stamp definitely leaping out at me. I had never thought about that, but good call.
1: Yeah, uh, this is similar to the first in that, again, we hear... What we know about Sinbad, we hear from his reputation. Sinbad has sent more pirates to the bottom of the sea than I can count. And when they get to a narrow passage that's by fog and very rocky, they say, well, he'll feel his way through. So we know his skill, his adventurism, just from what other people t- And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's kind of a, a cool way to not have to do backstory or try to explain who this character is. Uh, I think some of the other special effects, we focus on Harryhausen, but the old age makeup is really, really good as Tom Baker practices more magic. He grows older. I think I'll say it is the most exciting of the movie for me. I'm haunted by memories of, of high school being unable to climb the rope. So anytime there's a scene where someone is climbing a rope, I get physical anxiety. So uh, that was a very exciting scene for me. I'm like, hurry, hurry up. And what if they can't climb it? Like I can't climb it. What's okay. going to happen?
2: <laughs> here's my, here's my rope story. I climbed it once in my entire Oh, wow. Race. Congratulations. Okay. No, no. So we had like a substitute teacher that day and I couldn't do it, but yeah. This, this guy was a jerk and just taught. And I, you know, think I'm mean, in high school. I was actually had lost my weight. So I was actually not a chubby kid. I was kind of chubby when I was little sit seventh grade sprouted, got super skinny. I was and tremendously skinny uh, at the late 1980s, like stick my hand under my ribs, kind of skinny. And then over the last 30 years, I've just been plumping out very festively I climbed to the top of the rope this day because this jerk kind of egged me on and I got mad. And I'm like, ah, I'll do it. I climbed to the top of the rope. And I was like, you know, it was like, yeah, you made it. And then I'm like, how the hell do I get down? <laughs> my my hands gave way. I slid all the way down the rope. Don't say you oh. burned your palms. I burned my palms oh. and there was the big knot at the end of the rope. Yes. I wrecked myself. Oh. Like I've never, ever. It's <laughs> Basically, imagine somebody taking a bat and just hitting you down there. I hit it, and I just, it was that, the classic, you know, cartoon scene. I did the slow fall off the rope oh. onto the ground. He's looking at me like, what in the hell did I just witness? And, of course, everyone is like, oh. You know, and then, of course, there's some chuckles as I'm laying there thinking I have just killed myself. I'll never have children. I have never felt pain like that before. And Mm. as a guy, you know, we've all been, you know, racked once or twice in our life. You talk about anxiety. When I see that anytime there's a rope climbing scene, I'm like, hey, I'd never do it again. You know, if there's like fire breathing dragons, you know, waiting for me at the bottom, I'm like burn me alive because I'm never going to climb a rope again. I would be terrified if I did it. If I had the ability and I, you know, was not the the plump guy I am now, I still wouldn't do it because I, that forever.
1: Maybe I'm glad I didn't make it to the top. But, But But I wonder too, like, okay, if I were in a situation and I had to climb a rope to survive, could I do it? I don't know. I don't know if adrenaline would kick in, but I, anyway, that's, beside the point the other thing i want to say is you kind of mentioned it earlier with the the cobra woman in this one it's the multi-armed goddess i believe the, the six-armed kali yes i really respect the fact that that entire thing is is stop motion animation it would have been very easy to replace in certain shots with a live person and yeah this will haunt me later when i uh, we talk about the next movie, but I just really was impressed that they stuck with it hundred percent and they didn't do any alternating shots. As far as I could tell every single shot with that was the stop motion animation.
2: Yeah. It, it, yeah. As far as I know, it was all yeah. Stop motion. So, and then the well, final thing I want to d- say d- you know, animation, not stop motion. Oh, it was dynamation or sorry. dinorama at this point. I think it was film. None,
1: none of these are the super dinorama. Those must've been the ones in between. It must have been. Yeah. And then finally, like we talk about the lines, you know, around characters or I talk about a lot. It's a big pet peeve of mine. There were some in 58 version and, you know, you accept it. You know, that's the time. I unless I missed it, there was only one time in this movie that I saw any lines. And that was at the end when they were in front of the fountain. And I'm sure that had something to do with because it was running water behind them that it it looked a little bit fakey with the lines around them.
2: Absolutely. Harry House was on his A-game. Everything was just
1: in sync with this film. I have a confession to make. When we met Kirk Christian and began talking with him, his performances in these movies were not familiar with me. I hadn't seen these movies in years. And I was a little, I had some trepidation because I thought, what if he's no good? <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't think that would be the case. But the, f- the fact is, in both this and the next movie, to me, he is fantastic. Now, in this movie, some of the humor isn't exactly my cup of tea. It's a little bit um, forced, but he's terrific in it. So and I'm not just saying that I I really mean it. I, I think he's great in both movies.
2: I, yeah, I, I know it's you talking about as far as some of the, the humor in this one is. At times, it's a little, almost seems maybe a tad out of place for the scene. Yet, uh, Kurt does such an amazing job at delivering it. I mean, of course, we see him. He plays the character of Harun in this
1: film. And at first we see him, he's sleeping. Um, and then, of course, you know, he gets was almost, he uh, When they dragged him, like, to the ship, was he sleeping or was he, like, drunk? Yeah, I think he was drunk asleep because okay. I think there's a reference. I wasn't sure, but he was definitely like out of it. You could tell he's, a, you know,
2: yeah. Which worthless is he, wakes, he wakes up the next morning and he's at sea, you know, and then he, of course he thinks it's a, a a rib that's being played on him or he thinks, you know, his father is trying to get him to learn his lesson or whatever, then realizes that, no, you're, you're out at sea and you may be there for years, you know. Uh, And, of course, his line, you know, I I will be an old man. He does such a very different characters in both films. I would say that this is probably my favorite of his two characters because we get to see him kind of be a hero in this one. But he's also humorous and there's just his character is a lot of fun and has some uh, I feel like some some growth in this one. Of course, you know, he starts off being. Very much uh, a drunken, you know, rich kid almost. And then ends up, you know, working his way on the ship. He's got to, if he wants to eat, he's got to work. And by the end of the film, I mean, he's he's legitimate hero, you know, doing hero things. So I think that uh, it's interesting to see him grow as a character in this film.
1: You yeah, know, it gives the movie heart, you know, to see someone make a, a, a character arc like that when... Well, I don't think we had that in the first movie. Um, not really, not that I
2: can think of. No, so it's nice;
1: it's an extra touch.
2: And he had done some, some as an actor, he had you know certainly worked with some legends by this point. He had done the Long Duel in '67 with Yul Brenner. He had done The Last Valley in '71 with uh, Omar Sharif, and I, I think Michael Caine's in that movie. He had an opportunity to work with a lot of, of great actors and and have the ability to learn from the people that he worked with.
1: So how about the rest of the cast? We've talked about several of them.
2: Well, uh, just a little bit about John Philip Law. Of course, he was in Danger Diabolic. He was in The Spiral Staircase. Uh, he was also in Tarzan the Ape Man in 81 with Bo Derrick and Miles O'Keefe. So that may not necessarily be a high point of one's career. Excuse me, he died in 2008 at the age of 70. Of course, Caroline Monroe, uh, she was in the abominable Dr. Fives, Dracula 80s, 1972, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. James Bond, of course, will pop up at several points. She was in The Spy Who Loved Me, and she was also in The House of the Gorgon uh, just a few years back, our friend uh, Josh Kennedy's film with the original Hammer Stars. And Caroline Monroe will be at this year's Monster Bash. Douglas Wilmer played the vizier. Now he was in Jason and the Argonauts. He was in the James Bond flick Octopussy. He was the headmaster in Unman Wittering in Zygo, which we've covered on this show. He was Nayland Smith, the. Uh, Good guy versus the evil Fu Manchu, I guess, is the best way if you don't know your Fu Manchu lore. He played opposite Christopher Lee in The Brides of Fu Manchu and The Vengeance of Fu Manchu, uh, as well as The Vampire Lovers. And, well, he played Sherlock Holmes uh, in the 1964-65 television series. Christopher Lee supposedly was up for the part of Kura at one point. I think he would have done good. But I think Tom Baker did better. There was something about Tom Baker's maniacal performance and
1: Tom Baker's face. That is so funny because before I knew that in his early scenes, I thought, oh, Christopher Lee would be great at this. As far as some of the, you know, the I don't think we mentioned the fact this
2: movie is directed by Gordon Hessler who certainly has some great cred, Oblong Box, Cry the Banshee, Scream and Scream Again, the Spanish Moss Murders episode of Mm. Kolchak the Night Stalker, great episode. The uh, screenplay was by Brian Clemens, did lots of TV. People will recognize him as being a a frequent writer on the Avengers television series from the 1960s. And of course, as always, Ray Harryhausen uh, was involved in the story. He was the producer and generally is involved in the direction. I think Kirk Christian says he pretty much co-directs the films because he's got his hand in the production quite heavily. Orson Welles, I should mention, he wanted too much for the role of the Oracle. And the role went to Robert Shaw, of course, best known for playing the character of Quint in Jaws, as well as, uh, I forget the character's name, but he was in From Russia with Love, which I believe is also covered by Uh, Steve and Kurt, they mentioned that briefly as well. The only other thing I guess that I have, I guess we'll mention it real quick before we segue, is that there was supposed to be a Valley of the Vipers segment. Uh, It was supposed Mm -hmm. to involve real and animated snakes. Apparently, producer Charles Shear shot it down. Supposedly, he said that pregnant women in the audience would be greatly upset if they saw giant snakes on the screen. And so
1: they opted not to do valley of the viper scene so that's a mighty specific concern (laughs) i
2: i really was there
1: someone in his life that was pregnant at that time i wonder. that's
2: i don't know that seems a little odd and i you know take it with whatever it's worth that's uh that story is out there so all right how is it available for us to watch you can rent it on amazon prime for three dollars it's available on dvd Or the all-region Blu-ray from Indicator. Uh, The DVD is less than 15, easily found. It's actually the version I have, and it's a a very good copy. Uh, But I would suspect the all-region Blu-ray from Indicator is probably your best bet and is probably the easiest to find out there. Variety of different ways to watch it or add it to your personal library.
5: Now, Kurt, you brought up about the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and of course... That was your first time working with Ray Harryhausen. That's right. What is it like working with uh, uh, such a creative genius?
6: Well, um, I was surprised. Uh, I didn't know him and I didn't know any, uh, there wasn't the social media that there is now. So you don't, I didn't know much about him as a man, except that he'd worked earlier on with uh, the creators of King Kong and, and uh, And had a long background in it, and was a master in his world. And I'd seen several other movies of his too. He was such a gentleman, you know, and he was such a a a quiet, unassuming man that was a lot of fun and and humorous. And and I got cast immediately, like that day, you know. So it was very interesting because that doesn't happen very often. I thought it'd be a few weeks, but but they just said, yeah, okay, that's it. That's what we're looking for. You know? So it was a very uh, nice surprise. Uh, and and then I was uh, excited because uh, of Jason the Archangelist and started talking about it. And um, the the producer, Charlie Schneer, was kind of like, okay, that's enough. Because you know? <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we had lots of other casting to do. You know? And uh, so... So, um, we moved it along, but, um, he, and he maintained that, that charm and that, uh, that joy that he had in his, in his creations and in, in in these great movies, these fun movies. And, and he was always reading, always studying, always, uh, always creating new statues and, and articulated statues and bring them in to show you, you know, and, uh, it was just delightful. You know, all of us enjoyed his company because he co-directed the movies with with Gordon Hessler and and um, another great director who had been an actor.
5: I consider this one, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. This is my favorite of the Sinbad movies. Is it? Because to me, it's my favorite Sinbad.
6: Okay. Yes, I agree. He was. He had finesse. He had a lot of style. He was a great guy. John Philip Law, he was actually six foot six and he had to play down that he was six four and he'd, write, he'd, he'd put that on his IMDb type thing because people just wouldn't cast you. They just would say, oh no, he's going to overwhelm everybody and he was very conscious of that so he would actually kind of sim- almost change his size in in some way you know. but he had magnificent presence and he was a delightful guy and was an actual trained chiropractor he could uh, he would fix our backs and, uh, and he was a kind fun guy but
5: well, that makes it nice after a long day of shooting or, or doing um, various stunts you're able to go it's like oh, oh and get fixed absolutely.
6: absolutely yeah it was marvelous and they had we had a lot of sword work in that movie and uh, a lot of action a lot of action we had a marvelous uh, stunt coordinator for all the stunt work who had been an Olympic censor. But he couldn't come to the rehearsals in London for some time, about three weeks. So that was the time that we were going to practice all the things. And one of the guys cast in the movie was a a guy from Georgia and Russia, uh, USSR at the time. Uh, and he was the world champion saber fencer, and which is very different from being a stunt man teaching you how to do something. He was extremely competitive. He was six foot eight, and he he would hit us on the head with the, with the saber. Bang! Like <laughs> no, 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 not like this, like this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Not, all of us were complaining and <laughs> saying this is what we signed up for <laughs> and he, he just didn't get it and he had a part in the movie where he has a fight in the market with John Philip Law and he just could not get that he would have to lose this fight he just did not accept it <laughs> so, he, so they ended up uh, he, he finished off but um, but uh, he was—he was a dead loss in the movie. <laughs> and then we got our, our normal stuntman back, and he and we choreographed the scenes properly. You know.
5: And you probably were all happy, and, and your bruises got to heal.
6: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, we were getting. Uh, it, it wasn't the idea. wasn't for us to actually hurt each other and actually <laughs> compete.
5: It, there There's real fencing and then there's movie fencing, and I think he was having trouble right. adapting well and I can understand a little bit being an Olympic athlete, but then again, you know you're now in the land of make believe come on man yeah,
6: yeah, yeah well he was the professional world Sabre champion and took it to heart you know uh and he was a huge guy, so so he really hurt when when he went. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a um, that was a big surprise in the rehearsals, uh, and but but we all got to know each other in the rehearsals, and it was fun, really fun. And we had to make decisions like if you, if there would be accents or you because know, you have to decide whether everybody has an accent or nobody has an accent. You know, and and we're in that land, and that's it. We had a kind of a pigeon English accent, you know. Mm-hmm. Generally, just because the language was was more ornate, like like thiamel, you know, that was uh, that's not a regular joker. <laughs>
5: <laughs> you're you're about average height, but during this movie with your hair,
6: oh yeah, you, you had you, you
5: had you had you had some hair going there.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, the seventies, and Big hair was the, the deal, and mine grew ridiculously anyway. So, so it had to be tamed every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
5: that's, I was gonna say I had to give you an extra three or four inches at the, at the, at the oh, minimal, yeah. at the minimal.
6: <laughs> Next to him, you know, because we had a lot of scenes together. So,
5: at least if the sword guy was hitting you on the head, at least you had all that hair to kind of pad it a little bit.
6: That's- Absolutely true. I think that's the only thing that saved me from my concussion.
5: (laughs) This movie wasn't all just about sword fighting and everything else. You had the the privilege, I guess, to work with Caroline Monroe.
6: Lovely, lovely woman in every way. Just delightful. At the time, there weren't women with figures like this they were more busty and more, uh, more shapely than that way, but not as athletic looking and as, as, uh, and she was so gorgeous and she was sweet as pie. Everybody loved her. So, so that was a lot of fun and I had a lot of scenes with her because she was supposed to be the slave girl for our family because I was a rich, world drunk and, uh, and she was my slave girl basically. But, um, uh, so we had a lot of scenes together. And we we had to keep each other's spirits up, you know, because you get tired you know, over working our day or something. Mallorca, all these wonderful places, you know. and we we were up in high in the mountains. We had long treks in the mountains, and you, you shoot when you reshoot or do extra scenes. You, know, you get uh, you get tired, and we we shot the opening stuff in a grotto. A deep, deep in the in the mountains in uh, in Majorca, and it was very scary. We could only have it at night because during the day tourists would come to look at it. And So it was at, at night, and uh, and it was all these quartz crystals, and jagged stuff coming at you. Because it was, it was, uh, once I had to, I had to pee, and I was looking for somewhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> I went. Of the line of the lights, and I was immediately completely lost. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got my tea out quickly, and I was, I was, um, and I was hearing those little scrabbling noises, and things <laughs> I was getting creeped out. <laughs> and I finally saw the, uh, a little ray of light, and I just uh, quickly ran back you know? and then pretended that I was perfectly okay. <laughs> <laughs>
5: But it kind of it kind of fit with your character in the movie because your character was yes. was cowardly but courageous as the movie. T- yeah, you're one of the few characters that actually had an arc.
6: Yes, I had a good arc in that one. It was good because uh, I was a profligate spoiled brat you know, and uh, and deserved everything uh, all the fun they made of me. And um, and then there's this the moments in the grotto when. When he has to 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 do the bow and arrow and shoot shoot the uh, the turbans up so that he can climb up, and get out, and pull us all up. You know? So that's the moment that um, that I turn into a, a, a sort of junior hero, you know. Uh, so that was great. So that was fun, and uh, and then my pants fall off. So I'm always the Part of the jokes, and, and and at the same time, slowly becoming a hero. You know? So it's it's a really full character.
5: Yeah, because you're the comic an relief. You're her, you're heroic. Yes. You're, you, and and you're I'm, I'm I'm biased. The best looking guy on set. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Definitely authentic looking. Charles <laughs> Law was the a- a blue-eyed uh, looking like a white basketball player, you know? <laughs> 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 but it didn't matter. He had style. He had a, that Errol Flynn character um, um, kind of panache, and that's what you needed. And he, he threw himself full-heartedly into it. And if you see some of his other movies, he's very different in each movie. He's an underrated Guy, His looks kind of overwhelmed. His his uh, talent in that sense, because uh, Barbarella and Russians are coming. He's great in both of those movies.
5: He's a wonderful actor, and that's why it's, that's why I said he's still my favorite Sinbad because he's in there. I mean, I don't know. It's just he has the look, the the moves, and yeah. and and yeah. the comic timing, especially working with yeah. you with the crew, and they're making. When you when you realize you're on the ship and and what your dad had done to you, it's like yeah, take him out there. When I come back, I think they said we'll be
6: out for five years. I'll be an old man, (laughs) right? And when we had to fight um, Kali, the the um, six armed uh, goddess, you know, uh, the bronze statue that comes to life. So that took five days to shoot. That it had to be meticulously done because of the one stop animation. So he would give us the um, eye lines of eight foot. Eight, she was supposed to be eight foot high. And if you remember, I'm the one that pushes her over at the end and she smashes to pieces. Yeah. And we we did all of that. John and I together worked on how to make it funny. So he catches me just before I fall off, <laughs> following her. He catches me by the pants like that and we... We, had, we worked on, on all that business. So, so he, you're right. He had good comic timing and he, he saw a moment as this could be funny. This could be good. Yeah.
5: And the two of you had yeah. great chemistry together. I mean, it was just, you know.
6: Yeah. It's, it's we were good, good friends. It was great. He's a fun person.
5: Now I'd be remiss. One of the other reasons I love this movie so much, it's got one, uh-huh. of the, it's got to me one of the best villains. Tom Baker yeah. just absolutely dr- it, the way he just exudes evil and intent and everything else. He's, yeah. he's a tough
6: baddie. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's good. And the guy that was his assistant was, uh, from Zorba the Greek. He was a, a very important actor, a Greek actor, uh, important in, uh, in Greece. And, uh, he was very good and he had a marvelous look. So I'm And he had all black clothes, and he was, and together they were, they were a marvelous couple of, it was great. And he, he had, um, he was from the National Theater, and um, Tom Baker, and he had a a wonderful voice, and he would project it really well, and it was uh, very effective. But, he was actually like a mad hippie, in in real life. You know, he wasn't uh, anything. These uh, he things—he was crazy as a loon, and when, in a good way, in an eccentric, fun way, and uh, charming to be around. But you never knew what he was going to do next, and neither did he. certainly so he's great.
5: because <laughs> I, I know one of the best things of acting is the reaction. And if you don't really know what sure. he's going to be doing, your reaction, really, you have to hold your character and react as your character would. That, that has to be kind of tough, sure. but fun.
6: True, sure. you have to keep it fresh. You know, it's important. So when you have people like that around, it, it, it helps a lot. Uh, because you are reacting to something new each time.
5: Now, you also got along really well with Martin Shaw, if I remember oh, what yeah, I talking right.
6: Yeah. Yeah, we were dear friends. He was, he was a really good guy. And um, I've, I've lost touch with him, but I sent him a fan letter because he has a great show on British TV called Gently, Inspector Gently. And uh, it's, it was on for literally like eight years. And, and he was in, at the end of it, he was in his 70s, I think, just getting into his 70s. But he was a marvelous character and marvelously active. and um, and I was a great admirer of it. So I wrote him like a letter uh, because to see his his growth and his development over the years, you know. And he was, we lived in the same building in Madrid while we were shooting, and he was a, a vegetarian long before before um, it was fashionable. And people would talk about it. You know, he was just, that was his thing. He was a macrobiotic vegetarian. You know, and, he would, and he would cook me food. And I, I, he said, it's okay if you want to bring a piece of meat with you. <laughs> it made me comfortable. You know, but, and I had to have a piece of meat with it. <laughs> so, but he, he was like unabashedly what he was, which was great. You know, he was a thinker and a... A good good guy too and we had a when we were uh, practicing with the with the professional uh, world champion guy we ended up having an accident because we practiced together and I almost cut his thumb off you know because we we practiced too long and we were we, our reactions started to slow down and we're using we were using real swords and they were when they hit they start to get more and more jagged. And so it cut, it shredded right here. So it went almost through that tendon and he recovered pretty uh, pretty well.
5: And for listeners well, he- wondering, he was, he was <laughs> holding up his left hand and like it was in that thumb area of the left hand.
6: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, and no, actually what happened was it went, on the side of the sword and past the hilt, and then hit hit right there. Just, just in a glancing blow like that.
5: So yeah, one past the hilt, but hit still hit him in the left hand. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just describe because people can't see what, what hand you're pointing at and the motion, you know, cause.
6: Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, yeah. So that, that happened and we, and I was just heartbroken, you know, but, uh, but he was, he was tough. And, um, uh, we got through it, but, um, he was just so, so great. Such a great guy.
5: And it's, it's a great that You got the, you know, a lot of these people you've got to be friends with for a long time, cause I know people always say, yeah. you know, each set, everybody's like family and some sets I know truly are, but I think a lot of them, it's like when you work with coworkers, you, you're friends with your coworkers. And then when you move on to the next project. You have new friends; you become coworkers, but you always have those couple of coworkers at each thing that be, that stay more lifelong friends.
6: That's very true, absolutely true. And it's a, it's a kind of a gypsy existence, but you keep coming across those old friends that you're familiar with, and um, it's you're in exactly the same place you were last movie that you did with them. You know, you the friendship is like that; it, it just recreates immediately. So, uh, it's not like you see each other every day.
5: Now, one thing that you and I talked about that's never been recorded is you have a certain style of walking as an actor and, (laughs) um, and somebody, and a certain actor taught you that if you could share that story, it's a great story. This has nothing to do with the Sinbad movies, but for those that are movie fans, you're going to love this story.
6: (laughs) Well, most of the movies I did at that time were action movies and, um, and I did a, ma- a marvelous movie called The Long Duel, which was Yul Brenner and Trevor Howard were the stars of it. And it was a, a true story about a, an Indian bandit who uh, uh, was really a rebel against the British. And they were always looking for him. It took 20 years for them to catch him, but he, he would be in the hills. And so we spent many hours in the desert. And, 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 uh, and he was, again, a very large personality, um, would take us to dinner almost every night, uh, had parties, 10, 20 people, you know, dinner parties. And uh, uh, so I'd sit and chat with him and I was always, he knew every single person in Hollywood. So so he would, whenever I'd start asking questions about Hemingway or about Marlon Brando, he knew them really well. And so one day I said, is there any advice you can give me, you know, as a young up and coming guy. And he said and he looked at me and he said Hmm. Always walk crutch forward. <laughs> 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 and, and when I at him, now and when I see him in any movie I see his 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 crutch is six inches in front of him, and the rest of him <laughs> as he was. And he gives him a kind of sinuous uh, look. as He, as he, and he was a, physically a, a very imposing guy. Not a very big man, but but super strong because he had been an acrobat in the circus. And he had built up this tremendous circus allay type strength. You know? And uh, a very, very powerful man in that beautiful voice beautiful speaking voice. Yeah. It's just tremendous.
5: And also, what a wonderful dancer. He was so... His body was... Yeah. His whole body was such a great instrument.
6: Yeah, it was. It was. Absolutely. Like in The King and I, of course. His signature role. He just moved fantastic. And in The Magnificent Seven, you can see the walk several times. Uh, and his presence was phenomenal. He didn't have to do anything. You know, he just had to turn slowly towards the camera and... He's already in this, In you're already in the movie, you know.
0: These eyes peer out through time, through space, to a land beyond imagination. These are the eyes of the tiger. Follow their gaze back, back to where legends first began, where fantasy is real and the land of the lost is rediscovered journey across the oceans of antiquity to the northern edge of the ancient world. As Sinbad battles with both human... From
4: the depths of the earth, I command you, arise!
0: ...and supernatural evil.
4: Destroy them! Kill Sinbad! bewitched him. Let me get the smile from her face!
0: Filmed in the miracle of Dynorama. Starring Patrick Wayne, Karen Power, Jane Seymour. From producers Charles H. Schneer and Ray Harryhausen. Come face to face with the prehistoric trog. See the sorceress bring life to the all-powerful Minotaur.
3: Eat with the power as only I command you.
0: See Sinbad battle the saber-toothed tiger, the guardian of the secret shrine. Join Sinbad, the greatest of all adventurers, in his biggest adventure of all. Sinbad, and the Eye of the Tiger.
2: When his friend, Prince Kasim, is cursed by his evil stepmother and transformed into a baboon, Sinbad must journey north to find a way to return him to human form. There, he and his crew face a giant walrus, an eight-foot-tall troglodyte, a saber-toothed tiger, and other thrilling dangers none of which are as deadly as the backstabbing stepmother herself.
1: Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger was written by Beverly Cross, directed by Sam Wanamaker. Runs 113 minutes, so we're getting a little bit longer with each one. It was released, this is interesting, I'm not real sure, it, it had a a staggered release, I guess you could say. May 28th, 1977 in Detroit was its premiere, even before the UK, which was July 14th, 1977. Then in on August 3rd, 1977 was Los Angeles and August 12th, 1977, New York. So I'm not really sure what its national release date, if it even had one, it may have just had regional releases. Richard, you start out in general, you're a more optimistic, positive person than I am. So take well, it away
2: I do recall seeing this in the theater. Because I mean I, I was a bit more sheltered I think than you. Your grandmother took you to see The Exorcist. So or was it no, your mother? I did? have
1: to correct you on that. It was not my grandmother, it was my father. But still. Okay, but okay. My grandmother and, took me to see Paper Moon. That you're probably confused. That's
2: probably where I'm getting the stories mixed yeah. up because trust me, my parents would not have let me see either of those films because <laughs> they were adults and I would have been, you know, I would have turned out the way that I did anyway. Sinbad was certainly in the wheelhouse of films I could I could see. Although, interestingly enough, uh, this particular film has some G-rated uh, nudity in it. They pushed the envelope a little bit for G-rated. I always think of me, you know, like, around this time period, of course, I saw Star Wars, I saw Superman. In my mind, the movie that Elevated me to the next level was being able to see Moonraker. It is the third and final of the Simbad films. It is the next to last film that Harry Hausen did. It was his most expensive film at the time at $3.5 million. The length of this film, let's just start there. It's too long. Uh the film I felt needed to needed some editing, needed to be a little shorter. I think the running time of the previous two films was perfect for what they had to offer. I think this movie for what it had in it probably should have been no more than 90 minutes. Patrick Wayne takes over the role of Sinbad. Supposedly John Philip Law was going to come back and play Sinbad again, but for some reason didn't. I I don't know the reasons why Patrick Wayne and Kurt. Does a very nice job of of handling it, but we'll just say it. We can be a little less (laughs) politically correct in regards. Patrick Wayne just wasn't as good an actor as John Philip Law or Kerwin Matthews. He is the son of John Wayne. He did not have John Wayne's persona or his gravitas.
1: And even if he did, could you see John Wayne as Sinbad? (laughs) Well, he played uh, Genghis Khan,
2: so that would have been... You know that would have been, <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm, this crazy scenario. It's like you better stand back there, <laughs> great Kali. <collie,"> you know, <laughs> okay, that takes that's a whole nother. That's a multiverse version of Simbad. I don't want to see. You know, he did star in films like The People That Time Forgot. He was in several of John Wayne's films: Big Jake, The Searchers, Green Berets, McClintock. Let's be honest, we know how he got the roles in those. He was in Young Guns, along with a lot of other people. You know, Patrick Wayne's, I'm sure, a really nice man, but he's not an A-list actor, and he's not the best of the three Sinbad's in these Harryhausen films. I would much rather prefer John Philip Law come back for a second film. He wasn't horrible in the role. I can't say he was an absolutely bad Sinbad, He just lacked a presence on screen. I think you've got some great supporting, you know, cast. You've got some that maybe are a little less than others. You know, Kurt Christian comes back playing the character of Rafi. He is now a bad guy, which is an actor. As he said, it's always fun to play the villain. I think he does a great job as Rafi. Certainly early on in the film, he gets to have a a sword battle with Sinbad, which is, you know, fun. Certainly. But. I don't think that I I liked his his performance in the previous film or like his character, his performance in both films were great. I felt his character was better in the first film. He does get to play the villain role in this one, but he comes across more of a sidekick to the uh, the character of Zenobia, uh, which I know is his mother. And it's it's like he's always in her shadow, I think, other than the opening scene where he gets to do battle with Sinbad. Uh, he's always in Zenobia's shadow and he doesn't really get to stand out as much as I felt like he did in the previous film. You, you, but again, we've got some great, you know, supporting cast. Um, we'll kind of dive into, you know, a little bit here. But Patrick Troughton, I think, is great as the character of Melanthius. Another Doctor Who referenced Patrick Troughton, the second doctor. He was really, in my mind, one of the best doctors. And uh, he had many other genre credits. He was in Jason and the Argonauts. Of course, we've talked about him being in The Omen. He was in the 62 version of Phantom of the Opera. He was in Scars of Dracula. He was in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. So certainly well-known. And he has a really uh, expanded part in this film as is, is playing the the wise old melanthius who is basically giving them leading them on their journey to cure uh prince kasim who is essentially a baboon he gets very the, the actor i didn't even note the actor's name gets very little screen time we see him at the very beginning before things go horrific we don't see exactly how horrific we find out later and then he appears at the very end of the film. And what I thought was some kind of bizarre end credits, you know, this film had some fun elements, but it also really had some moments where it was definitely dragging. And I think the worst part, although Harryhausen's, you know, special effects in this one were, were good. I wouldn't say that really any of them were, would like, like would be in my top five of Harryhausen's creations and despite the fact that this costs substantially more to make than its predecessor, it suffers greatly from some very poor blue screen, which is what it was at the time, not green screen, but blue screen, but some very poor special effects that consistently pulled me out of the movie. I mean, you're, you're, you're seeing this, this great location shot, and then you see the close-up, and it's very obvious they're not there. They're in a studio somewhere. To the extent that the uh, the character of was it what was how did we pronounce Jane Seymour's character's name was it Farah? It wasn't Farah? Anyway, her outfit changes from blue to green consistently, and that's because they had filmed the location shots, and she was wearing blue, but then when they had to do the studio shots and put her in front of the blue screen, she was essentially disappearing because the blue outfit was disappearing into the background. So then they had to change it for those, uh, those studio shots to green and didn't have the money to go back and refilm all the location shots. And so she's constantly going back and forth. And let's just talk about the fact that her hairstyle changes at least three times in the movie. I'm like, she starts off wearing braids and then she's got some type of major frizzy do. And then she's got the straight hair. I don't understand the the production schedule. Clearly, there was some inconsistency. And I don't know if that, you know, I know that, uh, you know, Kurt had high praise for the director, Sam Wanamaker. Uh, I don't know if where the, where some of that happened, probably a lot of it in post-production is where some of these things were were kind of caught. They weren't caught during the filming and unfortunately, it's all these little things that individually wouldn't ruin a film, but when they kind of start to add up, it, unfortunately, they stand out a little bit. It wasn't as fun of an experience as the first
1: two films were. Where do I begin? So first of all, the blue lines, blue screen, whatever. Rich, that is largely not with Harry Harryhausen special effects. That's just with people. Yeah. I mean, for Harry Harryhausen to pull that off and it to look so good, how can they not do a decent shot of a human being standing there? Who Who's responsible for this is what I want to know. Is it the writing? Because there's some bad writing. I r- originally thought it was the editing. That The editing's awful. There are shots that are just like for an instant and then go away. There is literally a shot where the characters are, or the character is... Off to the side of the screen, you see half their face and they're talking. It is a badly made film, in my opinion. So I thought, okay, the editor, that's the first one I blame. It's the same editor of the other movie. I don't know. I really question it. The the writing, Beverly Cross, she's also written some of the other ones. I, you know, I don't really hold her responsible. I don't blame Patrick Wayne completely. He's given some pretty bad lines and and here's the thing sinbad we've talked about him in the first two movies of how we get this image of him he stands at the entrance to uh when they go to see patrick trout and melanthius and he has already battled these ghouls that came out of a a cauldron he's seen his friend turn into a baboon yet when he meets melanthius you know what's on his mind how did you know who i was? Who cares? I mean, that's yeah. irrelevant. That compared to these other things, <laughs> yeah. how does that matter? I mean, yeah. I, yeah, bad writing. So, you know, he's forced to deal with that. And I'm not saying he would have been better. I think the best thing about his performance is his wardrobe. He they've got a the best sinbad wardrobe we've seen. He has a beautifully colored robe, silk robe on yeah. the ship. He gets to wear a Paisley shirt at the end. I mean, he's A fancy guy, this Sinbad.
2: Yeah. And I do question the budget because and and Carla mentioned this. She said, you know, the ship in the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, she said, really seemed like a majestic ship. This one, she said, really kind of seems like, you know, he's he's had to trade it in and it didn't seem as it just it had a faded paint job. It didn't look anywhere near as as big or as grand. And you didn't have a lot of the, the the great ocean shots. You had a lot of great shots in the previous film. You didn't have that here. Yeah, so, and that's
1: weird because the first two movies open with the shot of the ship at the sea and the end yeah. with the ship sailing off in the sunset. You mentioned talking about the post credit scenes. What about the during credit scenes? Both of them like credits are going over the action and it's not, yes. it's inner in the palace with people walking down halls. It's like, well, and you get that at the end, especially. Yeah. So the, the big scene right at
2: the end where a spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, the, the prince is, is back. He's getting crowned or coronated, whatever the terminology would be. You know, he's exchanging glances with the, the character of, uh, of what is it? Dion. And then you've got, you know, the big scene where Simbad and and uh, Farah, again, I think I'm pronouncing I like that, that wrong. Farah's good. But the, the big scene where they're kissing, right? The final big kiss of the movie, and you can't see it because you <laughs> got <to> credits. <laughs> whether it's the director or whether it's the editor, that there was there was some missteps at some point. That, despite the fact this movie is made what you know three four years later, it is it it's a step down unfortunately and there's no way to sugarcoat that and it certainly wasn't from some of the performances entirely i mean patrick wayne not a john philip law but i i felt like you know jane seymour did good in in her scenes as as uh, farah by this point she had she had done certainly some films she had done Frankenstein, the true story. She had done James Bond, live and let die. She was, you know, in the couple of years that followed, she would do Battlestar Galactica. She would do Somewhere in Time. Like I said, I love Patrick Troughton in this film. I think Kurt did a good job as, as the villain. One, you know, a really good job. I love the opening, you know, scenes with him. Very villainous. Love the sword play. Margaret Whiting as Zenobia, There were some some sometimes she played a little a little over the top, certainly at the beginning when she has the confrontation. You know, it just seems like she was really going over the top.
1: I thought she was very good, except for scenes when she was supposed to be interacting with. She just looked lost and her reactions were totally like when she was small and was like looking around. It was very bad. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I, overall, I liked her character. I thought she did a good job. She just didn't wasn't directed well enough how to interact yeah. with special effects.
2: You know, Taryn Power, uh, as, as Dion, she uh didn't do a lot of films 11 appearances. Uh, certainly, there's some lineage there with Tyrone Power, I, I believe. I can't remember the family tree exactly. Uh, I do think it was kind of funny as you'll hear Kurt shares a story about her. Very nice. But uh, yeah, there, there, was, there was some funny, some funny comments about her. She didn't do a lot. Like I said, only 11 credits. So, uh, and we should mention, although you don't see him, you'd never know Peter Mayhew uh, playing the Minuton, the live action Minuton. This of course, right before he gets the part of Chewbacca in star Wars and, then of course, you know, his his life is pretty much set at that point. You had some elements that, that were there. I think the story was was good. It just needed to be shorter. It needed to be edited better. And I think that's really what it comes down to. I think the editing and the and the directing is where the film suffers. And the music, we should mention you don't have Bernard Herman, you don't have Miklos Rosa, you got Roy Budd
1: sorry Roy (laughs) now just because his name isn't as fancy doesn't mean you know I know the music isn't as good (laughs) I know it's not it doesn't it's
2: nowhere near the Herman O'Rosa music and it's it's serviceable but it gets lost it doesn't stand out and it doesn't enhance the film in my opinion
1: Nowhere in your research did you see about like it was rushed. They needed to complete it to get it out or anything I like didn't, that. I couldn't find anything like that. There has to no. be some reason because this is notably different.
2: Kurt doesn't mention that either. I mean, he, yeah. he, you know, certainly, you know, had some stories to tell about it and, and had, you know, what seemingly was a good experience. He had words of praise for Sam Wanamaker. He directed the movie Catlow. He also starred in Superman for the quest for peace, which probably is not a feather and a cap that you would mention normally. I So I don't know, maybe it was in the editing phase. I don't know, but some, something was amiss with this film. You know, I didn't hate it. No. So, you know, it, it, cause it still had Harryhausen's touch. And those are the best parts of the film. Honestly, you know, if you watch this movie by itself, we probably wouldn't be nitpicking as much, but we had just watched two really good Sinbad films. And so our expectations are way elevated. And now we get this third film and we're like, okay, well, he's not as good as Sinbad and the music's not as good. And you've got some really bad blue screen. And, you know, it's just that, 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 all of a sudden it starts adding up. Unfortunately.
1: I will say um, I like the sense of humor of this one better than the previous one. It's more my cup of tea, my sense of humor. For example, when they're trying to contemplate how did they would get on the island or something, and one of the crewmen says, "I have an excellent idea. Let's turn back." I thought that was. There are some funny lines. I mean, I it's... love how Zenobia is running out of powers, and when she transforms back from the bird, yes, she has a a webbed foot still that's kind of funny and give him credit through the rest of the movie when she walks she's hobbling along because oh absolutely so i mean you know it's not all bad no i did question one of the jokes and i don't know we're so hypersensitive these days maybe it's no big deal but after they the walrus scene one of the uh, crewmen says i've never seen a black man turn white before yeah and, th- and then it's it's one of those where everyone that's in the scene is oh ho, 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 ho. that's the funniest thing I've ever heard.
2: Yeah, not a joke that that stood the test of time. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, what else can you say? But I would agree. Yeah, that that yeah. I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, yeah, uh, okay, but this is where I would say, you know, was that acceptable at the time? Is it acceptable in the moment? You know, I try not to judge a film by today's no. standards when a film is old, because then you, you're going to be nitpicking everything.
1: Well, did we talk about all the cast or
2: do you have others? I think that's it. The primary cast. Oh, here. I do
1: want to say, though, you you said we don't see him much. Prince Cassim, who's a baboon most of the time, but his human form, Damian Thomas, he was in Twins of Evil. He was Count Karnstein. So ah, he perfect. was the Dracula surrogate, basically, for that movie i knew i recognized him from something any other place that we can watch this than the places we can see the other two you know same thing
2: for rent on amazon prime for about three dollars or excuse me Mm 2.99 uh dvd is about ten dollars and the all reach and blu-ray from indicator i again haven't seen it haven't heard anybody talk about it but it's what i would recommend you find i it seems to get good reviews.
5: We talked about the golden voyage of Sinbad and you got to play a hero. But in Sinbad mm-hmm. and the Eye of the Tiger, you switch sides. You're now the bad So what was that like going yeah, from he- the good to the bad?
6: <laughs> well, it was very interesting because Ray wrote the part with his co scriptwriter for me. Actually wrote it for me. And and I don't know what he saw on the other movies that made him think that, but, but I'm very glad he did because it was um, really people love playing villains, you know, because you can express this, the whole dark part of your character and, uh, with impunity and not hurt anybody. You know. But it, it was really super, and and he was the kind of um. A whiny, spoiled brat who wanted to be king, and 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 she wanted his mother wanted him to be king as well, but um, things weren't going well. And you didn't have so, anybody you, as your mom. You, you had
5: Margaret Whitting as your mom.
6: <laughs> yeah, Margaret Whiting, yeah. Whiting. I'm sorry. Yeah, she was mar- Yeah, and she she happened to be married to the lead guy at. The National Theatre when I was at the National Theatre. So when I was 16, 17, he was the leading man in, our, in the in the show we did, and so we had some major connection. Plus, she was very funny; she was a very humorous person, and we talked for hours and laughed on the set for hours on end, and then go straight into the into the action. You know, <laughs> after we would been giggling would be five seconds before. And, uh, yeah, she was a wonderful woman. And she was a very famous actress. And that's another thing in the cast. He would cast Royal Shakespeare Company actors and and national theater actors. And at first, there would be uh, this feeling uh, that in Britain they had at the time, which was that you would, Doing these movies just for money, or or because you had to, there was a kind of a slight snobbish thing about the theater and about oh you know I, I did Hamlet last week you know and I did this and then literally uh, a week into shooting they'd all be completely absorbed into the <laughs> into their <laughs> heart. enjoy the hell out of it, and and they would be super grateful for years later. They, that they got to be in these wonderful movies and and so many people respond to them and and uh, and talk about that not your performances Richard the third you know, when you were 22 so it was interesting seeing that transition too and yeah. and the effect entertainment both all of the harryhausen's movies were very entertaining were very engaging and and there were family movies and uh, and they had this this uh, joy to them.
5: I think that's why they still hold up so well today. Is because it, 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 they're fun. They're in, and it's still, with these fantastic creations and the, the worlds that were put yeah. in there, it allows people just to use their imagination. Where nowadays, yeah. a lot of people want so much photorealism. You know, everything yeah. is so photorealistic. It's it's almost like yeah. you're you're losing the imagination. Where I think it's it's that's what I find is a nice cross where you can use your imagination to believe what you're seeing, and and it allows you the gateway to go into
6: it. Yeah, well, one of um uh, great talents I think was uh, the dramatic moments of the monsters themselves when they would realize that something is there that they have to go and crush and the head would turn slowly, you know. Or or the fight scenes between two huge monsters and when one would be hurt and the other one was thinking about moving in for the kill, you know, and then this one turns back and the, the timing of everything was so magnificent you know, that it was as dramatic as as a boxing match or, or, or a war movie, you know. So that was, that's that's uh, part of his great, uh, great talent.
5: And he, as you said, he was half the directing team, the other half was Sam Wanamaker. And what was it like working yes. with him?
6: Well, he was a, a very, very famous hero of actors because he was in the House on American Activities uh, Committee. He was, they tried to ruin his life, you know, and uh, paint him as a communist and everything. Because when he was a very young man in college, he, uh, you know, went to some meetings and things. And, and and he was vilified. And he was one of the group of people that actually moved from America to, they could only work in England because they were blackballed in America, in Hollywood, some people. And um and I ended up meeting and working for several of them. Carl Foreman, I did a movie for him. who was a famous writer-director of I knew. And he only worked in Europe. And, and, uh, and Sam only worked in Europe and several others. And Sam was very intense. He took this whole thing very, very seriously. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he was a me- famous method actor. He was from, from the Actors Studio and the group theater. You know? he, re- he really brought the best out of you. He's great. Intense, man.
5: I just find it funny because you, you said he's a method actor, and then, of course, you're talking about how you and, and Margaret would be laughing and giggling, and then 10 seconds later, you're the character. <laughs> yes.
6: yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly.
5: Makes me wonder what he was thinking when he saw that. He was just like, what? What are they doing?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> there, there was one more part person who was part of the, the villain side and he was, it was uh, Peter Magu was, Oh yeah. Was, it was uncredited as the Minneton. So, so the minute so so sometimes he's there and other times it's Ray Harry, Ray Harryhausen's version.
6: But what was it like working with Peter? Well, almost all of the time that we're in the scenes, it's him, it's Peter. And they had a fiberglass costume, um, that he's fit into. He was, like 7'3 or something incredible, and um, and it was scary. You know, he was scary, and and but a wonderful gentle man. Obviously, he had been a hospital porter when they found him. Uh, who knew that later on he'd be in the biggest movie of all time? You know, okay. but um, at the at the time he was just you would kind of trying to make him at ease about the way that people responded to him because at that time you didn't see people that size you know now there's there's like 50 basketball players that size that are that move like point guards you know but uh, at the time and, and he had uh, he was very gentle and very sweet guy and and it was very hard wearing that costume because he'd be hours in and he'd pour with sweat and uh, he'd have to be sort of released from it. It had to be split in half to let him out of it and put back in. And uh, he was very patient about that. Once, uh, when we were shooting in Spain, I think, um, we had to get onto our ship. If you remember in the story, she and I... uh, had our own ship, and we were chasing, uh, uh, chasing Simba and uh, and and the Minotaur was, was was making the ship move, and and, uh, and was our our uh, guardian, and uh, we would take a little a rowboat to out to the ship, which was like um five hundred yards off the coast. And I, we were in these silk costumes with gold thread, fantastic things worth hundreds and thousands of dollars. And the, the ocean, the Mediterranean is usually quite calm, but it was pretty pretty up and down that day. And I had to somehow get from the beach and onto the boat. And they got the rowing the boat close in, But not very close, like three, four, five feet away, and and I looked at Peter, and Peter leaned over and and with a hand the size of a of of his chair, he put it underneath and lifted me up and put me into the chair with one hand. So you're like a child (laughs) to him. (laughs) Yeah, tiny child next to him, and he weighed about. Three hundred pounds, but you would never know it because he looked long and slim, and uh, uh, but but the superpower and the 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 angle that he put me in was just perfect, he, and it was gentle, and it was just like, oh, okay, I'm all right, you know? and we saved the costumes that way, and he did the same with Marcus. and uh, uh, that was a salient moment where you felt like out of body experience. You know? But he was a great guy, great thoughtful person.
5: Now on on the good guy side, yeah. is is somebody you you palled around with a lot? Uh, I think after the movie was done too, and that's Patrick Wayne. So you, I think you two must have become pretty good friends.
6: Well, um, I saw him a few times afterwards, but but he was kind of like Hollywood royalty. You know? So um, I I I and I moved to America after that movie as well so uh i saw him at um and i think jane seymour's house a couple of times and and uh, but we we on the set before his his family came out i, I would hang out with him and we had a good time he a good relationship good friend. and we had a long um, fight scene too a sword scene that we had to practice and we we got it down really well. It was a really good scene. And uh, those things can be tricky, you know, so you have to be both on board to get it right. And it was terrific. He was fun. Good guy, you know, Dif- very different from John. Uh, and as you said, he didn't... Uh, not to denigrate him in any way, but but he didn't quite have the the experience that that, that John had. You know, he was had been a leading man for some time, and uh, and he got that part. And I think you in know in Patrick had the physical uh, look for it. He's he's he he was good, but he wasn't quite didn't have quite the star power that the that John had and even Kerwin Matthews had a had a presence too. He had a a heroic presence that was fun and light.
5: You know. Oh, I think I think all three guys that played Sinbad did good jobs. I'm just in my mind yeah, there's just they, one of them to me who was like the Sinbad. You know, it's yeah. it's just you know, so I'm not we're not trying to say either one of them all any of them are poor. It's just it's a matter of taste. No. It's a matter of no. taste. <laughs> Speaking of taste.
6: The, girl, the you, girls were, were fun.
5: You knew exactly where I was going. Yeah. I was going say, speaking of taste, um, you, you had some, some lovely ladies in this film.
6: Karen <laughs> Power, who was a young hippie, who seemed to be high all the time. She was, she was funny <laughs> as hell. <laughs> and, uh, and her mother uh, had been married to Tyrone Power. And... Uh, As you can tell by our name, and so Charles, um, uh, the the producer, Charlie Schneer, who was a very fun guy in his own way. If he couldn't get big names for a cheap price, he would get their children, (laughs) and so he could at least have the surname of famous people. And so he got Wayne and he got <laughs> Power and he got <laughs> all the people who had been big stars in his day. You, know, you well,
5: well, you could have the poster uh, saying Wayne,
6: Power. It's, it's you know yeah. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but Jane, I has auditioned for um, for uh, Romeo and Juliet, Zeffirelli, a fame very famous version of Romeo and Juliet, and when we were both about sixteen. We auditioned together for it, and uh, and she was uh, she was so stunningly beautiful when she was well, she is now. She's still beautiful, very beautiful. But um, but then she had she was only sixteen. I was only sixteen, and the bloom on her and this English rose look that she had is just fabulous. Uh, and she's fun. She we re- re- became good friends.
5: Now there's also another Doctor Who connection. We had Tom Baker in the prior Sinbad oh, yeah. movie. And this one we have Patrick Trowden, um, Right. The second doctor. Right. So we had the sure. second doctor and the fourth doctor. What was it like working with um Patrick?
6: Well, he he had a strong presence and he had he was one of the the actors that had this kind of aura that this might be slightly beneath him, but he was, you know do His thing and it would be good, and he was because he, he, he was a great actor, and uh, uh he was one of the best Doctor Who's to me as well. Uh, but but he there was a kind of a reserve to him, and, uh, so we didn't have the same kind of rapport that, that I had with other, other people. But it was great to be on set with him because he was right on his stuff, he knew exactly what he was going to do, and uh everybody raised their games, I and mean, he was on set. So, so that was a good thing. So I appreciate that. And he wasn't, he wasn't rude or, or awful or anything. He was just, just a little, uh, a little more reserved than the other.
5: Yeah, everybody, it's like, it's like your coworkers. There's always this, there's the coworker who yep. you get along with, but they're just, they're just, you know, they like to watch or they just like to be by themselves a little more. And there's other ones that like to, um, or more extroverted and get into being yeah. talkative and that kind of stuff.
6: And a lot of it is your perception, you know, my so my perception was that he had a slight contempt for the other actors. Which was probably not true at all. It was just was his physical appearance and look and and he didn't have didn't suffer fools gladly. you know, he was he was this is just not for me, you know. <laughs> so that's but I had admired him as a, for a long time as an actor and always did. Now, and he I, had a great voice.
5: Oh, uh, There's a lot of great voices. I mean, you think Tom Baker, you think Patrick Trout, and uh, I think a lot of the doctors, John Robert Pertre, Shaw
6: Robert Shaw. In The Golden. Yeah, Robert Shaw. His voice was milder still. He was a lot of fun.
5: Uh, I always remember Robert. You always think of Jaws and the U.S. Was it yep. the USS Indianapolis speech? Oh
6: yeah, 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 yeah. And then he was in the Sting. He was really good in the Sting. And the, and the James Bond movie, the Goldfinger. No, was it Goldfinger? No.
5: Um,
6: he was great from Russia? Uh, Oh, from Russia with love. We both got it at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was super in that. That kind of um, was the origin of of these kind of robotic guys that the the that they were looking to to develop as super fighters. And he got that down, and that became the blueprint for it. Yeah.
5: Oh I know that I, I, I actually rewatched that film just about a month ago and it was just like oh,
6: oh, man, it's so it's enjoyable one of my favorite one of my favorite bonds it had so much atmosphere
5: and Sean Connery oh
6: great 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 with the line and uh, the girl was great uh, there were many great the scenes on the train were fantastic the fight scenes but once, just before
5: we're done talking about um, the Tiger, if I remember right, you actually had to, pre- well, you didn't have to, but you chose to perform one of your own stunts.
6: Well, w- what happened was they didn't have a stunt man to do it because this is really interesting actually. They found a guy who said he was a stunt man in, in Malta and uh he was a kind of a hitchhiker, basically, and he just told them that yeah, yeah, I can do it. And then they took him up the stairs of the pyramid, and he looked down, and it was just steep. It was like <laughs> that, and um, he said, "Oh no, 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 I'm not doing this." <laughs> and he walked up, and they fired him, and uh, and they they would wondering what to do next. And I said, I'll do it. Said, really? I said, yeah, I just put some pads on. And I put, And my friend was the sound coordinator. So we worked it out and he showed me what, and I did it kind of, I was doing Aikido at the time. I did an Aikido roll down the stairs. But I can tell you that when I hit the bottom, I was completely out for about five seconds probably. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I did because I, it was, oh, okay, they, everybody cheered. It was hilarious. You know? It was a huge set, and uh, and it, it, when I saw the the um, the uh, the dailies of it, it was like, wow! I did, really did that. What an idiot! You know? <laughs> 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 but it was the joy of youth. You know?
5: It it takes a special breed like the Tom Cruise's and the Jackie Chan's that just want to keep doing that and doing that and it's yeah uh, sure. you know I think I think a lot a lot of them like you said when actors are young they're like yeah I can do that and when they get older like oh why did yeah. they do that
6: <laughs> yeah well the practical stunts I think work much better I much prefer them so I I get why they do it you know, because it does work better you can tell right away when it's when it's, when it's CGI or fake stuff, and uh, and they do great work, both of them. But but they they are banged up, both of them banged up from it. It, it, They've got heavy arthritis,
5: Eventually, eventually, um, everything takes its toll. But um, I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with you to help um, Rich and Jeff out with their episode. Or the show, that going, I'm talking about the Sinbad movies. I am not going to ask you which Sinbad movie was your favorite to do or whatever, because I think that, that that's one of those those tough questions that are almost impossible to answer. So, um,
6: I think... Well, I can say, okay. I can say that, that because there was a gap between the two uh, over two or three years and that each one was equally terrific to do. And I was in a different age, different position, different everything, and um, still enjoyed every moment of, of both of those movies. And a lot of it was to do with Ray himself and the and what he set as the, this is how we do these movies, you know. He set the tone. I
5: was going to say, because you're one of the few actors that are prominently featured in more than one Harry Howes film, you know, and that kind of stuff. And I mean, there's, there's other actors that have been in Harryhausen films multiple times, but I, I, I think that I, I didn't. I haven't done. It, I haven't done an open study looking at it, but just I'm thinking, you know, two major roles, and right. uh, I don't think there's many people. You, you, I think you're in a, a, a very exclusive club. There, there, there might be somebody else in there or two that I don't know about. And I'm sure there's people that will write into their show to say, Steve, you're an idiot. It's there's this other guy and there's this other person or whatever, but. I, I, to To the be best I'm not going to try to spend the time to do the research cuz I know there's people there really deep in the re house and
6: stuff. I'll, I'll get you. <laughs> you will be well informed.
5: <laughs> um did you want to say anything to Rich and Jeff before we sign off?
6: Oh, well I I miss them actually cuz we we used to um our fellowship thing with movies and things we did more often but but in over the pandemic and different things we we stretch them out, you know, and haven't done one for a while. And I miss their comments and their back and forth and, and Alistair and all of them. They're all so much fun. And they have two uh, connoisseurs of movies, you know. So it's great. great to have those discussions and great to know them as friends. You
5: know? Oh, I agree. And um, for listeners, you both I, I know because you listen to their show, you know exactly what Kurt's talking about but Rich and Jeff's knowledge of movies is, is really good i mean they, they yeah. do their research they know their stuff otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this show Yeah, uh, keep, no. keep listening and you guys are doing a great job episode after episode i hope you enjoyed kurt sharing some of these memories of the movies and that kind of stuff
6: uh, this is a great evening thank you
5: thank you kurt
1: we are back and it's time for new business. I first just want to thank Steve and Kurt one more time for their incredible contribution to the show, raising it up from the gutter where it usually belongs. No, I'm sorry. that's
2: No, yeah, I, I would second that. Thank you so much, Steve. You took the initiative. You know, we're friends with Kurt, but I think you've got a a, a, a more personal friendship because you've interviewed him several times and you've always set up our little fellowship of calls. So you took the lead and to do something extra fun for our show. And we really, really appreciate it. The segments were awesome. Thank you, Kurt, for taking time out of your schedule to offer up your, your thoughts and memories on the Sinbad films. Um, hopefully we didn't bash the last film too much because we certainly loved your performance in it. it as one of the highlights of that film. So um, thank you again very much for doing that. Uh, it really, truly means a lot to us.
1: Coming out on home video, not a lot of releases, but some fun ones. There's a couple I know you're going to love, and there's one that I am absolutely over the moon about. First of all, on, okay, I'm pausing for a moment. Yes, we are talking about the last couple weeks of May into uh, June. So on May 31st, we have Yeti, Giant of the 20th Century from 1977 coming out from Kino Lorber. June 14th, and most of these I will say are, Kino Lover, thank goodness for them because there's not a single Shout Factory release this month that bears mentioning on this show. They do have other releases, but June 14th from Kino, the mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu from 1929, and the return of Dr. Fu Manchu from 1930. You've mentioned, Rich, your interest in those. Any particular reason why, or you just want to see them?
2: I've never seen them. The only copies out there
1: have been re- well i'm not even sure if there has been any copies of these out there june 21st the ufo incident tv movie from 1975 i recently wrote about it on uh, friday my series on 70s tv movies fantastic film i just may have to purchase it because it's really really good james earl jones and estelle parsons and then on the 28th there's two movies. I'll let you guess which one I'm over the moon about. Is it Mardi Gras Massacre from 1978 come <laughs> out from Severin or is it and this is a little out of our era but from 2000 Uzumaki from Discotech Media.
2: Hmm, I'm I'm going to go with the, I'm going to go with the first
1: one. I might be going Mardi Gras Massacre. I don't even know what that is. No. Oh, really? you're going with the- Uzumaki. I have seen on a I don't know, bootleg something. And I have longed for years for it to come out on a decent, you know, official release. It is such an amazing movie. It means, I think means spiral. It's a J horror Jap- Japanese movie. The visuals are are fantastic. I've never heard of Discotech oh. media. I hope this is not something that we can't get in the United States, but very much looking forward to Uzumaki. Uh, Some birthdays, Ray Harryhausen, like you mentioned, the specific date was June 29th of 1929, he was born. And then we've got the trio of, of giants in the business, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee and Vincent Price, all born at the end of May. One year we celebrated their birthdays for one of our episodes, which the number is failing me right now. Do you know? I have it pulled up. Yes, that would be episode number five. Oh, my gosh. That's May another one we need to dust off. Uh, actually, we've remastered that oh. one already. Oh. So oh. that is on SoundCloud.
2: May 2017, we did The Oblong Box from 1969, The House That Drip Blood from 1971, and Mad House from 1974.
1: Interestingly, for anniversaries this month, we have three Harryhausen films, and I'm just thinking that probably summertime, maybe the summer movie blockbuster has always sort of been a thing, because June 4th, 1957, 20 Million Miles to Earth, June 13th, 1953, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and June 19th, 1963, Jason and the Argonauts. So three of Harryhausen's films were big summer releases. Okay, Rich, let's start to wrap things up and let's talk about what we're doing. Usually you go first, but I'm going to start. What's going on with you? Eh, not much. Same <laughs> <laughs> old, same old. Thank same old. you for joining, everyone. We'll talk <laughs> to you soon. <laughs> the 30th anniversary edition of We Belong Dead magazine is out. I have a contribution in that. Carrying on, uh, oh, it's, yeah, for another week. It is the month of Gamera. On uh, classichorrors.club, and we've got one more next week. I already mentioned the Friday. TV... We, we should podcast.
2: mention that when you watched Gamera Super Monster, you set off the sirens in Minneapolis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I wrote Richard. I wrote that today before we recorded, and you know, I give it a pretty good defense.
2: It's it is Gamera. So let's just admit, yeah. Even the even bad Gamera's has got to be fun, but. I if you start breaking out the Casio keyboard and singing Gamera and serenading, no, that's that's going to have me greatly concerned. So.
1: So that's interesting. You call it a Casio keyboard. I, I think that when he does that, when he sings for the girls, I think that's what it is. But at home. And by the way, let's give him credit. He supposedly wrote that song. You know, his character wrote that song in the movie. Anyway, that has got to be a fun machine. Do You remember the fun machine? i do yes my yes. grandmother had one of those and i loved playing it you could set that bottom part to be uh speaking a big band or swing you could have done that you could have done you know different things that sort of just kind of pumped in the background while you played the the top song on the top i guarantee that was a fun machine well and he, he
2: looked like he was having fun with it and, <laughs> and so was the trio of lovely ladies he was serenading so that's all that's up
1: with me what about you
2: well, you know, I did some extra lawn Chaney stuff for to kind of supplement last month. I didn't do as many as I I wanted to do. Unfortunately, towards the end of, of uh, April, uh, I finally got COVID. Yay. After two years. So that uh, both Carl and I got it. We're fine. We had a mild case of it. For the most part, we were just kind of down for the count for a couple of weeks. Our stamina was, especially that first week, I was working from home sleeping during lunch and crashing right after work unfortunately i I wanted to do at least one or two other films and i didn't get to it and i thought well we're at the end of the month so i will end it early but i didn't get a chance to do mr woo which i really wanted to do so maybe in the future we'll have a because there's certainly a lot of cheney that i will i still want to see so uh, there may be a cheney part two somewhere down the line maybe next year Uh, As for this month, I'm going to do a couple of of extras to to support uh, our Sinbad episode. I am going to talk about uh, Son of Sinbad and Captain Captain Sinbad. So I think by the time this episode goes live, I will have talked about Son of Sinbad. And then probably right after the episode goes live, I don't know, I'll have to time it. Before the end of May, before actually before the 27th of May, it'll be done. So it's just going to be a couple of films. Starting May 27th, it is time for Flash Gordon. Carl and I will start our summertime series. The last three years, we've done a whole summer celebrating comedy films. We've talked about the Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, and Harold Lloyd. And we decided Harold Lloyd was so much fun last year. We Going to be really hard pressed to top that. So, we wanted to do something totally different. Flash Gordon's Space Soldiers from 1936, Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars, 1938, and Flash Gordon's Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe from 1940. I'm going to do like an introduction article right before Memorial Day weekend and then do three chapters a week. I think it'll be maybe a, a slightly different format than last year, but it's going to be, I think, more so fun than anything. Just us rattling our random thoughts about Flash Gordon. Then kind of getting ready for our summer time event. But first, we just got some quick news to share with you. Um, we've shared this with a few people, but now this is the official announcement that We've talked about that we were going to Monster Bash, but life kind of intervened, and Jeff and I had a heart-to-heart conversation. We were both kind of thinking things, and we just sat down and made a decision that we will not be attending Monster Bash this year. We're both fine. Don't worry, nothing's going on. Just adulting, and sometimes adulting's mm-hmm. not fun. And uh, but we made the decision. So Jeff and I will still be getting together at some point this summer to to. I don't think do anything that anyone else will know about, but we're going to get together and have some fun that won't involve a, uh, a 26 hour round trip from Kansas city, 38 hours for Jeff because he would have been coming from Minnesota and you know, gas is not cheap. And that's probably the biggest factor is that it was really going to cost a lot just to get there before we actually got there. So we wish everyone going to monster
1: bash fun Hopefully ask for a lot of people to call in maybe and give us some reports.
2: Yes, absolutely. Any of our friends who are going, uh, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call. Let us know as you're there, Jeff and I will be back at monster bash. That's that we definitely want to go back. I, who knows, not going to say we'll be back next year or not, but I love going to monster bash and we will be back. Unfortunately not going to be this year. But I think that everyone who is going to go is going to have fun. You've got Patrick Wayne. You've got Caroline Monroe. I'm probably the most bummed about not seeing Will and Holly from Land of the Lost. I think that would have been fun. And we're going to have a good time because we are well, Let me
1: first r- say, though, there is a silver lining to this cloud. And that oh, is yes. that there now is a room that will be surrendered oh, yes. for somebody else. So what I'm going to do is at some point... After this episode airs, I'll just throw a post up real quick on the Classic Horrors Club Facebook page and just tell everyone, hey, we've got a room. And if uh, that's something that could benefit you to have a room there, then I hope that you can have it.
2: So this summer, Jeff and I are still going to have fun. We're firing up the DeLorean because by popular demand, we've always had good response We are headed back to the drive-in, but not just an ordinary drive-in. We're headed back to the drive-ins of the past. And we have got uh, a lot of fun movies lined up for you this summer. Uh, We can share with you the first two, our drive-in double feature for June. It's going to be a good one. We're pulling, we're starting with, with two of the greats. Pit and the Pendulum, starring the legendary Vincent Price. Barbara Steele's in that one as well, correct? Yes. Yes. And then we've got Frankenstein 1970 starring Boris Karloff. Uh, a very fun film. I think a often underrated film.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, July and August, we got a couple of fun double features. If you're doing your homework at home, Pit and the Pendulum and Frankenstein 1970 is what we've got on top for June. And I'm hoping that we will have some friends join us along the way. We've had uh, friends in past years, and they all seem willing to come back or go back to visit us at the drive-in. We're not going to announce who it is now, so don't ask. It's not. We're not going to tell you. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. We've done this throughout for three years. It's one of my most favorite segments that we do every year, and we do it for the entire
1: summer. All right, we will call this meeting to a close then. We're going to go out with another song called Sinbad the Sailor. This one is from the soundtrack of a 2008 film, which I have never heard of, called Rock On. It's available on Apple Music. uh, I've heard of that movie. Interesting. Okay, You have heard of it? I think I have, yeah. Okay. There's two different ones. I think this is actually possibly a Bollywood movie. Oh, that I. But then there, no. there is a re. I don't know if it's a remake. There is another movie called Rock On. This is not the American.
2: Oh, movie. so we're we're going out with a Bollywood tune. All Possibly.
1: Right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Notice I didn't say. I said it was from the movie Rock On. I didn't say who sings it because I can't pronounce their names. If that's any indication, and it may or may not be in English, but it's called Sinbad the Sailor.
2: And appropriate because Sinbad did not originate in English. So what exactly. a wonderful way to go exactly. out.
1: Everything's coming together. So thank you exactly. all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next month at the drive-in. Stay safe and take care, everyone.